The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the Frankenmuth Historical Association. Some episodes may contain subjects that are uncomfortable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and guten tag, and welcome to Historians and Lederhosen. I'm Garrett. I'm Nathan. And I'm Malcolm. We are three historians from the Frankenmuth Historical Association, located in Frankenmuth, Michigan. The association owns and operates a seven-gallery museum, a historical log house, Fisher Hall, and a collection of over 30,000 artifacts. Check those out at frankmuthmuseum.org or right on our Facebook page at Frankmuth Historical Museum. This podcast will tell the stories of Michigan's Little Bavaria to the real Bavaria and anything in between. Be sure to tune in every other week and listen to the three of us and our guests as we dive into the wide world of history. Auf Wiedersehen. All right, welcome and everyone back to another episode of Historians in Lederhosen. This is Garrett, and I'm here with my two fellow historians, Nathan and Malcolm. How are you guys? Good. How are you? I'm, I'm fine. Living the dream. Incredible. So all of us are very thankful for your continued support of our podcast, and we would be even more grateful if you took a moment to subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. So today we are going to take some time to talk about the world's largest Volksfest, or Folk Festival, in uh, German... Oktoberfest. Many of us know this is the festival where people dress up in lederhosen and drink beer out of boots and other crazy things, but Oktoberfest <laughs> actually has an interesting history that we will dive right into today. But first, let's start ourselves off with a quick game of where in the world am I? So I'm oh. going to give you guys three clues. These ones are relatively easy, but um, if, you, if you know it after one, just go for it. Carmen San Diego, take us away. All right. <laughs> I am in the largest and southernmost state of Germany. Germany. Oh, close. <laughs> we're a little more specific than that. For once, we're getting specific on this podcast. <laughs> Pretzels. Pretzels. Oh, you're close. Uh, That's just right next to me. <laughs> <laughs> I am surrounded by blue and white checkered flags. Frankenmuth. <laughs> I mean, I am there right now. <laughs> All right. So many of the businesses start with the German word Bayern. Ah, so kind of like Bayern Munich mm-hmm. or Bayern München. Uh, so I'm going to go with Bavaria then. Yes. Province of Bavaria. Exactly. And that's actually where Oktoberfest originated. So I'm just going to dive right into the origins a little bit here and then we'll go through this. So when we hear the word Oktoberfest, many of us picture big beer tents with men in lederhosen and fedoras singing German drinking songs. Of course. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> a, that's a, just a general Thursday in Frankenmuth. Um, Living your best life. Exactly. So with this image, it would be hard not to assume that this was how Oktoberfest originated. But I'm here to break that stereotype and tell you exactly how it originated. Um, So the credit for the idea of Oktoberfest can be given directly to one single man, and that is Andreas Michael Dull Army, an officer in the Bavarian National Guard. So when it became known that the Prince Regent of Bavaria, Ludwig, would be married to Princess Therese of Saxony-Hildberghausen, I apologize, um, the officer decided that their wedding should be celebrated in a different way than had been traditionally for royalty, because obviously back in... um, Back in the 19th century, I didn't get that year right away. It was in 1810 that they got married. But back in the 19th century, royalty was like the most spectacular weddings that you could have. 
But um, Officer Del Army decided that he wanted to hold a horse race for them. He wanted to throw this massive horse race. So he went to the king and um, asked, like, could I, could I throw this huge party for your son? And he signed off on it. So on the 17th of October, the race happened. And now we have Oktoberfest. So after this royal wedding, which almost everyone in the city of Munich were invited to, the people demanded more of the festivities. They wanted this to happen every year. So they were like, like, that was a really good time. This that, should not be, we don't this is, this shouldn't just be for, wait a for another matchup. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, after that, that they got exactly that after the first wedding, Dull army was no longer the financier. He was a very wealthy man and that's how he could just throw this massive horse race. But, um, Year after year, these kept happening, and they all centered around that horse race, that horse race mentality. It was kind of like this was Bavaria's Kentucky Derby, mm-hmm. essentially. That's kind of what was coming to mind for myself, right. too. Like, just this annual big event. Mm-hmm. Right. In, in the early years, I think 1813 was the first time it was canceled, and that was for the Napoleonic Wars. And there have been some pretty famous reasons why Oktoberfest has been canceled. Most recently, the last two have been canceled for the COVID-19 pandemic. But the festival became a priority for the city of Munich in 1819 because they started to realize, like, when there's a party, there's money to be made. (laughs) Um, And uh, this duty was handed over to the, I'm going to absolutely, like, obliterate this German name, Landwirtschaftlicher Verein. Um, so that's the Bavarian Agricultural Association. Mm-hmm. They they uh-huh. became the financiers of the uh, of the festival because they too recognize that this is going to be a moneymaker for not only our organization but it will bring people to Munich. Yeah. Um. So in eighteen, this became like I said after eighteen nineteen, it became a real priority for the city of Munich, and um, by eighteen fifty, there were two. Um, sculptors that decided to make a statue that watches over Oktoberfest that still stands to this day. And those were Johann Baptiste Stiegmeier and Ferdinand von Miller. And then by 1885, electric lighting was introduced. Um, 1887 saw the first opening parade, which is to this day, one of the big events at Oktoberfest. Sure. And by 1895, all beer began to be um, served in glass mugs or moss. And that's another big like a uh, souvenir from Oktoberfest to this day. And 1950 was actually the first time that the traditional opening ceremony of Ozaft East, which was the uh, first tapping of the kegs, that was the first time that that was held, which kind of shocked me. I was assuming that that would have been would have been instated from like 1810 on when it first started. Um, and then. 1960 was the last time that they held horse racing at Oktoberfest. And that's when during the 1960s, that's when Oktoberfest began, began to turn into this commercialized festival that we now know as today. Hmm. So I think I'm just going to hand it over to Malcolm and he could maybe talk a little bit about those traditions that we now associate with Oktoberfest. Yeah, definitely. So um, as Garrett kind of mentioned, like the parade, I think is probably um, one of the biggest kickoffs for the Mm -hmm. whole thing Um, after the, um, Ozoft Mark, um, 
which has become, you know, kind of a viral sensation even now too. Like I've even seen some of that on TikTok, mm-hmm. uh, like the, the traditional tapping of the first keg and everything like that. <laughs> right. That's even disseminated into sports teams like mm-hmm. um, Bayern Munich uh, recently um, won a pretty important tournament and they celebrated with the, the mayor of Bayern <laughs> Munich and he capped the, uh, they tapped the tapped keg. The keg with him. Yeah. Nice. And so uh, you, you can kind of see that um, those kind of little traditions sort of disseminating into many more other um, pieces of culture um so the parade of breweries is pretty important too yeah it's literally exactly what you uh what you think it is it's a very traditional parade you know through the streets all the breweries kind of showing off um just their colors and their traditional costumes and uh a little bit of their advertising obviously you know mm-hmm. um as most things tend to be this has become a highly commercialized uh kind of endeavor and event um but yeah you know you know it's part of the culture too is you know the history of these breweries and how long they've been around since like the 1600s and uh you before that back to the 1400s so you know there's a there's a huge history here so it's very um proud for them to walk through the streets in the uh, parade at the breweries and of course too everywhere you look you'll see uh people dressed in the uh traditional german dirndl um and the lederhosen um which you'd think we would know more about being the historians in a lederhosen <laughs> but we still lack our own personal lederhosen so <laughs> yeah, if anyone wants to sponsor a trip for the podcasters here uh, if you want to send the historians in lederhosen to germany <laughs> to wear lederhosen and experience Oktoberfest, uh, we are accepting sponsors at this time. <laughs> yep. And if, if, if you just end up buying us some lederhosen, like that works too. But we would love to go to Germany on your behalf. We'll, we'll do a <laughs> live would. podcast episode over there Ooh. for you. <laughs> we'll, we'll just interview people. We'll interview people at Oktoberfest, get their, there you go. Get their uh, opinions on the historians in lederhosen. Sounds like a pretty good time. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so, uh, accepting sponsors. Uh, <laughs> check the check the website for for an email address. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you'll see pretty much everyone in sort of those two most traditional uh, garments um, being kind of adorned by tourists and even locals. Obviously, there's much more traditional, um, handmade uh, versions, and then there's sort of the. Uh, the Halloween party store kind of costume versions of them, but you'll kind of see the whole gambit there. Um, and then the big event is too, is uh, all of the, uh, the celebrating that goes on in the quote tents. And I'll come back to that in a minute. So in Munich, there are 14 large tents and 20 small tents. Now these large tents have room for about 3000 people. Um, Consider that a tent. And that's considered a tent. And the small tents are a thousand people. Um, so if just doing a quick math here, that's about sixty-two thousand people at full capacity. Now those are rough estimates. Some of these tents can actually hold up to ten thousand people. Um, so nice. I take a little issue with the word tent because <laughs> uh, really, even if you look them up online, these aren't like tents like Americans think of as like a ca- like a big white canvas um, right. topping. These are basically buildings. Okay, uh, they're beer halls. Uh, they're very very uh, traditionally decorated. Um, most Frankenmuthers would probably recognize the Bavarian architecture that a lot of them have. The the kind of the Alpine peaks um, and a lot of the traditional kind of wood and colors and uh, mm. carvings and engravings. I mean, these are buildings, but they're con- but they're called tents. Uh, but they're beer halls. I mean, they're not completely unlike 
what we have right here, which is Fisher Hall, just attached to the building beside us here. Um, the Frankenmuth Historical Association has uh, owned uh, Fisher Hall since the 80s, um, and it was originally erected to be sort of a German-style beer hall, and um, it can be used as such if you want to rent it out. Um, like I said, the, the the renting and advertising commercialization never stops. <laughs> <laughs> Shameless so plugs. Yeah, so if you want to rent Fisher Hall, a traditional German beer hall, you can do that. Just go through our website, frankenmuthmuseum.org. Uh, but yeah, moving right along. So these tents really aren't uh, tents, even though that's what they're called. Um, and each tent uh, basically sells a different kind of beer and is advertised based around the, the sponsor of that tent. Sometimes it's a brewery, sometimes it's just a, an organization. Uh, but each tent has its own beer that it serves. Um, sometimes it's, you know, like I said, uh, the Hof, House mm-hmm. has their own beer tent and they serve Hofbrau beer. Um, but, you know, other tents could serve Hofbrau beer. Other tents could be um, created and sponsored by someone else and then serve a different kind of beer. There, there's not much rules to it, but other than it's all German beers, obviously, so you're definitely going to get your fill of multi-good, <laughs> excellent German beer. Dark, hearty beers. Yeah, nothing to complain about there, certainly. <laughs> um, now, I mentioned kind of that rough estimate of, like, 62,000 capacity. Like I said, like, even based on these tents, that's just, like, the rough numbers. But that doesn't even include old Weizen. Uh, the Old Weizen is Old Oktoberfest in English. Um, it's a whole separate festival that actually emphasizes the traditional characters of the Oktoberfest with brass music and historic attractions. Um, and it has um, uh, paused every uh, four years to make room for the Central Agricultural Fair. So there's um, this kind of really nice blend of kind of the old and the new, like moving forward. Obviously, there's a ton of attractions also at Oktoberfest. Uh, it's, a, it's a family event. It's not just for... Um, you to put on a $15 dirtle uh, costume you got online and go <laughs> drink beer all day. You can do that if you want, but you can bring the whole family. There's tons of rides. You can think of it very much as a traditional uh, carnival, like we would see here, like the carnival comes through and there's kind of rides that aren't like, um, like smaller scale than a theme park, basically. Mm, right. Um, the one interesting thing that I found when I was doing research into this is that until 6 p.m. on the days of the festival, they have a decibel limit. And that's mm. to allow for younger children and older people to enjoy the festival during the day. And that's when you see the traditional brass bands mm-hmm. and all of the more traditional aspects of the festival going on. And then after 6 p.m., which this just kind of blew my mind, they bring in like EDM DJs, like electronic dance music. And oh, it's, wow. the yeah, most, yeah. it's the most European festival you'd imagine, <laughs> just a bunch of techno music and people going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, there, there's that kind of that really nice element to it of sort of the the merging of the old and the new. They're not afraid to, you know, move forward and kind of add new elements like EDM, um, which has only been really popular in the mainstream for the last 20 years. Right. Um, but there is still this sense of tradition and kind of keeping with traditional norms, but also being able to be progressive and kind of adapt and change. Um, and, you know, I think as long as you're serving good traditional German beer, I don't think there's ever really going to be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's pretty much, um, you know, that kind of wraps up kind of the um, where it started, kind of what it is, how it kind of works. Nathan, why don't you kind of take us through what does that look like over here? Because obviously, sure. again, that festival has completely disseminated into North America. Uh, you'll find Oktoberfests even in Canada, in Kitchener-Waterloo. They have a pretty big annual one. What does Oktoberfest look here look like here in Frankenmuth, given its heritage? Nice, thanks. Um, so <laughs> it's kind of funny. I didn't read... Uh, 
either Garrett or Malcolm, either of your notes before this. And the whole time you two were talking, I was like, okay, that makes perfect sense. Like, I get where Frank and Booth gets this from and this from and this from. Um, so we do it, everything in silos and then we try to keep it nice and raw. So that we all, you know, for our audience. Yeah, I was just unprepared. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously. Um, so Frank and Booth Oktoberfest really does try to replicate the Munich Oktoberfest in many, many ways as to, you know, all the different Oktoberfests we have throughout the country. But if you've ever been to one in Frankenmuth, it's really well done. Um, so actually, this year's Oktoberfest is actually Frankenmuth's 32nd annual Oktoberfest. It's going to be September cool. 15th through the 18th. Um, so this podcast is just going to be released right before that. And if you're listening to this and Oktoberfest is already over, um, sorry, you should have turned in earlier. You should have came out. Mark your calendars for next year. Yeah. What, what else can we say? Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the Oktoberfest website for Frank Booth actually has like the next 10 years, the dates down. It's Perfect. Like no excuse. And, and that's be, uh, when I was doing a little bit of research into that, that's because they coincide because Oktoberfest at, in Germany is, I think, 20 some days. There's, there's a specific number, but the Frank and Booth obviously being a little shorter, they coincide it with the beginning of the uh, Oktoberfest in Munich. Oh, nice. <laughs> so everything's getting kicked off at the same time. That's right. Cool. Yeah. So for those of you that are a bit unfamiliar with Frank Muth, if you're listening in and are maybe a new listener, um, we are known as Little Bavaria, just for a lot of the shops and buildings and German traditions and things that we have here. Hey, that's in where Frank Garrett Muth. was at the beginning of this episode. <gasps> Look at that. <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> How did I get here? <laughs> Um, so in 1990, Frankenmuth actually started the first Oktoberfest here in Frankenmuth. Um, as Malcolm was saying, talking all about the beer tents, we actually kind of have one here in town called the Her- Harvey Kern Community Pavilion. Um, and it's located in a heritage park here downtown Frankenmuth. And it's a giant like blue and white tent. Like the roof looks like a tent, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Malcolm was saying, it's it's a legit building. It's a structure. It's not like a flimsy tent kind of thing. Um, and this is where Oktoberfest is sort of held every year. Um, and they have a lot of other events in town and things as well. Um, but essentially the community pavilion is just a sort of scaled down version of one of these authentic German beer halls, right? Um, the pavilion holds about 5,000 people, whereas some of them that Malcolm was mentioning hold as many as 10,000. Um, so you see like we're getting there. We're, mm-hmm. we're not too far off from one of these kind Munich the, Oktoberfests. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so in 1996, actually, so six years after the first Oktoberfest, um, Lord Mayor Christian Ude of and the German parliament from Munich gave an official proclamation, and they proclaimed that Frank Muth's Oktoberfest was the first to operate with the blessing of the original Oktoberfest in Munich. Yo, that's cool. Yeah, a lot of locals take a lot of pride in this, right? Um, It's a big deal to get that sort of recognition Mm -hmm. and to be able to say, okay, we're doing it well like they do in Munich. Like, you don't necessarily have to go overseas to get most of what you would experience in Munich. Mm -hmm. You could do it right here in Frank Muth, Michigan. See, I love it, and I love it that like different organizations and um, you know st- European status type things like that are willing to do that too, um, you know, kind of share their culture in sort of a, a, an official way as long you know so that like that culture can be disseminated across the world and other people can enjoy it because not everyone can afford a. $1,200 ticket plane ride plus um, right. amenities to Germany. But the idea <laughs> that you could come to a German sister city and mm-hmm. have a relatively authentic experience, that's really cool. Cause that's like, um, 
well, it's you know, it's not dissimilar to like Alma College, how they have a, an official registered tartan with these mm-hmm. tartan officials Go in Scots. Scotland. Like you know, like <laughs> that tartan is an official registered tartan, and like that's cool. I really like that when you know cultures are willing to share their culture around the world and um, legitimize it themselves yeah. too. Right? You know? Yeah. Um, and so after that, 1996, Frank Muth actually decided to move uh, their festival which I'm a little unclear what month it was. Maybe it was October, probably to be obvious. Um, but they moved it back to September, kind of when Munich is lining it up mm-hmm, with that mm-hmm. um, to be as sort of realistic and authentic as possible. Um, and then at this point, um, for the first time in history, world-famous Hofbrauhaus of Munich, they just decided to start exporting their beer to the U.S. Mm. This was kind of because of the Frankenmuth Oktoberfest. So so you're welcome, world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so like we've said, Oktoberfest, right? It strives to preserve sights and sound of Munich's Oktoberfest. We have a lot of great, um, annual activities every year at the Frankenmuth Oktoberfest. If you come into town, you're going to see a lot of that Bavarian blue and white checkered plaid kind of thing. You're going to see people in lederhosen. You're going to see people wearing dirndls. German foods and beer are everywhere, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, dancing, we have, uh, the shoe plodlers. They, they do an, a dance every single year as well. Um, and then something that I didn't always realize, um, Frankie Muth, um, they also host wiener dog races every single year. So like when Garrett was talking about the, (laughs) yeah, when Garrett was talking about the horse racing, I'm like, okay, that's why we do it. It seemed kind of funny and random a little bit, but I was like, let's "Ah, take a horse that's like a 10th the size (laughs) with like insufficient legs and we'll make them run against each other. As you know, wiener dogs are the horses of dogs. (laughs) That's always been said. (laughs) Oh, that's good. So essentially in this race, they, they do it in the pavilion and they just, they have like two people that the dog's familiar with, right? Um, on either side of the pavilion, and they have a line taped across the room. And the first dog across that line wins, right? Um, and so, like, they let them go, and some of the dogs will go straight for the line. Others will just be like, meh, stand there. And, like, it, it's funny. It's funny to watch that's them. Great. So they're, they're not like forced to run by any means. If the dog wants to just turn around and lick his owner, that's what he's going to do. So, <laughs> that's um, great. And even though they sort of declare a winner, there there really are no losers, right? These no. these winner dogs are all winners, and absolutely, we're all, we're all winners for getting to spend some time with them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, if you come to the Frankenmuth Oktoberfest, you're going to see a lot of winner dogs, like mm-hmm. just around town. Like it's a ton oh, of fun, yeah. and they're so, they're so friendly. They're great dogs, um, and. Yeah, so that's a little bit about Frank Moose um, Oktoberfest. And you can see like a lot of the parallels between mm-hmm. Munich and between Frank Moose Oktoberfest. Right. Well, it's interesting too that you've even seen that creep around the state as a whole, too, because like how many breweries in Michigan release an Oktoberfest beer every mm-hmm. year? I mean, right. Bells, Founders, Shorts, North Peak. Uh, does Right Brain do one? I mean, there's. There's a time. I mean, almost certain, like all small craft breweries. Most of the craft breweries, yeah, really some sort of an Oktoberfest beer, and you yeah. know, Bell's is right. fantastic. I the, always get it, you know, and it, you can get it at Kroger. Like you don't even have to go to like your obscure hipster craft beer nook, you know. Right. Like, you'll find these, like you'll find Oktoberfest beers from you know microbreweries in Michigan at Kroger or Meyer or whatever. It's it's also kind of fascinating to me. Like I was saying that. Oktoberfest became a priority for the city of Munich in 1819, so nine years after they had the first one. But 
Oktoberfest in like the United States, it's just associated with like beer in this drinking culture, but like it kind of has bled into like American microbreweries taking on like this German German kind of like attitude because mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. one of the microbreweries in my hometown of Marquette, Black Rocks Brewery, owned by one of my best friend's dads, um, they have like this whole German like German atmosphere. And it's just interesting to me that like that kind of goes back to this like association of like German drinking culture with yeah. like our modern breweries. And it's just interesting. Well, in most breweries you go to, they'll serve you pretzels. Right. But, you know, like that's a staple at almost every brewery I've mm-hmm. been to in Michigan is they will serve you some sort of press pretzels and like beer cheese mm-hmm. or like a, you know, beer mustard or something like that. Um, it's all great. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that, uh, that kind of brewery culture from... Uh, Germany has definitely made its way over here. And a lot of these breweries, too, are even setting up their own little micro festivals, too. Right. Like, you know, Shorts Day or, you know, Bell's um, is really talented at creating a lot of hype behind all of their beer releases, whether it's Oberon or right. uh, Hop Slam or anything like that. So, yeah, it's it's just kind of neat to see these, like, once you learn about this stuff, to kind of just see it in the woodwork of, like, yeah. everything, you yeah. know, not just Frankenmuth. <laughs> right. So... All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning into another episode of Historians in Lederhosen. We hope to see you in September at Frankenmuth's own Oktoberfest. Maybe we'll be there. I know I will be. Um, so again, if you could just uh, <laughs> please subscribe to the podcast if you're enjoying it, where, wherever you're listening, and please leave a review. That really helps us promote the show and continue to improve our show. We do read the comments. Um, we take them to heart. Uh, we mm-hmm. only cry a little bit. <laughs> yeah, they actually make me read them aloud. They need me to practice my reading. <laughs> but uh, again, thank you for listening, and I'll be the same. same.